Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, guys. How are you? Now, you had an extra hour of sleep, so you should respond better than that, right? How you doing? There you go. All right. Well, good morning. My name is uh, Bob Bickford, and I am uh, a friend of uh, the Mizells and uh, a friend of Trailhead Church in this regard. Uh, we both have a common history. Um, we have uh, both been a part of the journey in St. Louis. Um, I served there uh, for about three years in uh, various roles. And really, the, the way that Steve and I connected and, and Trailhead and I connected is when I came in 2009, I uh, was working with the campuses at that time, and uh, so met Steve and Lauren and their family. And then one of the things we began discussing was the reality that it looked like Trailhead uh, should be, at that time, it was called the Journey Metrist at that time, and we, we decided, you know, hey, we think God may be leading you guys to become your own congregation uh, on your own, kind of an autonomous deal. A lot like when uh, many of your parents sent you off to college, uh, they packed all your stuff up and they said, we love you and we want you to go be an adult, right? And so they're praying that that takes, right? And so they want you to kind of to, to discover your future and, you know, kind of be who God's called you to be. And so we began that conversation uh, and then began pr- plans and preparation. Uh, and it'll be two years in, in January that uh, Trailhead will be uh, its own congregation. And so it's exciting for me to come and see what God has been doing. Uh, I serve along with another pastor uh, named John Ryan. Uh, he and I serve along with Steve in kind of a, an eldership group uh, that, that uh, just cares for and supports the Mizells in this congregation. And so uh, if you wonder who the board of overseers or directors, I'm one of those guys. And uh, in the future, you guys are working on getting your own. So it's good to really be with you uh, here on a Sunday worshiping with you. Um, we're going to talk about identity You've been working your way through Ephesians. You've been in chapter 1 for a number of weeks. We're going to transition to chapter 2. And Paul is writing to this group of believers, this group of Christians in Ephesus, and he's helping them discover who they are. And specifically what Paul wants them to know is who they are in Christ. And he is helping them understand that, that identity because who they are in Christ, it matters for them individually, but it also matters together for them corporately. That's part of what Paul is introducing them. You are now part of a church. We don't go to church. Church is not a building. You are the church. And so as the church, you have an identity. And so Paul is writing and helping them understand that. Now, if you and I were to meet for lunch or for coffee and were to get to know each other, 
we would ask some questions of each other. We, we would kind of try to find out some history of each other, right? And so we would ask probably the St. Louis metro area question uh, that's a common one that's, that's asked most often when you're getting to know someone is, where did you go to school, right? Have you ever heard that question? Okay, a couple of you have heard that question. So you ask, where did you go to school? And what they're talking about is, where did you go to high school, right? And then you might ask, where are they from? And so what we began to do is we construct kind of a grid to understand who people are based on those questions that we ask. Did you go to public school? Or private school? Are you from a big town, like a big city, or are you from like a, a small town? Are you from close to here? Or are you from, you know, way far away out of state? We would ask those questions because we all know this, that who we are is shaped by who we were, right? So our identity is as much a part of our, our history and our past as it is our present. And this is what Paul is doing here in Ephesians. He is helping this new group of believers understand their identity. Because they're various and they're diverse. Uh, they have all kinds of different backgrounds. You have a settlement of, of Jewish believers who've come out of Judaism and they worshiped God, but, but now they've come to understand and trust Christ. And so there's a new identity forming in them. There's a group of, of Romans, of Greeks that, that were very secular, or very cultic in their worship. And so he is helping them understand who they are in Christ. He is helping them understand their identity. And so initially what Paul begins to talk about is there are two kinds of folks or two kinds of people. There are people who are in Christ, meaning that they recognize their need and their, their, for Christ. They recognize the sin in their life, the separation from God. And so they recognize that Christ is the remedy of that, that he is the Savior, and so that he died for them on the cross. And so they have responded to that. So they are in Christ. And so Paul's writing to them, but Paul is also writing to those who are not in Christ and helping them understand their need for Christ. Now, if you and I were to meet or even talk after the service, if you introduce yourself to me, you would probably not say, hi, my name is John and I am in Christ, right? I mean, you think you probably wouldn't lead with that, right? That would just seem kind of strange, right? Try that out on campus next week. That just seems strange, right? Um, we don't introduce ourselves that way because we, we often don't think that that's part of our identity, although it very much is. But we don't lead with that. We lead with other things. We, we let other things form our identity, things like our performance, right? So one of the questions we ask is, what do you do? Meaning, well, I'm a student, or what year student are you? Or, or what do you do in business? What's your job? Are you the kind of person that, that actually has a business card with a real title, right? Do you have an office with your name on the door? Do you manage people? Do you lead people? What's your title? What do you do? We do this in school all the time as well. You know, we kind of think about our rank in the class. We think about our performance. We do this as parents. Right? Am I a good parent or a not-so-good parent? We do this in relationships. Am I a good boyfriend or am I a good girlfriend or, or am I a good spouse? Or, and we, so we, we kind of think through these things. Performance is one of the things that shapes our identity. But if performance shapes our identity, one of the things that we'll realize very quickly is that we get very tired, right? Because we always have to perform. That if the basis of who we are is based on our performance, and if it's a good performance, what we realize is that we can become very exhausted. This is not a helpful thing to base our identity on. 
Also, we, we tend to base our identity on our problems. Do you, do you ever have friends, don't raise your hand, but you probably have friends that you know that the, their identity is formed around the crises in their life, right? That, that who they are is like a walking crisis, right? There's always something going on with them, relationally, physically, financially, uh, maybe in their job or school. They're just defined by the problems in their life. People can become defined by that. We can also become defined by our pain. Now, in a, in a group this size, it's very likely that some of you have experienced very difficult challenges in your life. Perhaps it's been a, an abuse situation. Or maybe it's been physical or emotional or verbal or sexual even. And so for you, part of who you think about or what you think about when you think about who you are is this idea that you have been harmed and hurt in significant ways. And so you begin to define yourself, uh, part of your identity, as a victim. Some of you may, may define yourself in the sense of like a, a person who's alone or abandoned, that you've kind of done life on your own. Others of you, it may be loss. We often define ourselves by pain. If pain defines our identity, then what we're doing is we're defining our, our, who we are by something that doesn't give life to us. This is not what Paul is writing about. He's wanting us to discover what gives us life. And here's what I would say. If you tend to define yourself by the the crises and the difficulties and the pain that you've experienced, understand this. Your experience does not define your identity. Your experience is true. I'm not diminishing it. We don't want to forget about it. We don't don't want to set it aside because it's your experience. I'm not dismissing that. But it's not your identity. We also at times will define our identity by our past. Now, this is one that, that those of you who are in school, uh, you can really identify with. Because maybe when you came to school, uh, you had that freshman year. You know, you're kind of like, I'm throwing off some restraints. And, uh, you know, they don't take attendance or they do, but it's not really mandatory. So I'm just kind of set that aside. And so, you know, you, you don't show up to class. And if you don't show up to class, you don't turn into work. And, you know, it, it doesn't go so well. And so your past indicates that you kind of had a freedom-filled freshman year, Right? And so your transcript shows that, right? And you carry that forward with you. Some of you are feeling immense amount of regret even now as I speak, right? Think about that. Our past. Now, maybe it was a, a, a marriage that didn't go well. Or maybe it was a job that, that didn't go well. Maybe it was a failure that's significant that you've kind of pushed back. And in your mind, you think about This is who I am, and this begins to shape and define your identity. But Paul is writing, and he wants us to understand that there's another way to look at our identity, because here's the truth. Whatever defines our identity determines how we live. How you see yourself determines how you live, how you move, what you do, what you think of yourself, how you interact with others. And so Paul is writing in Ephesians so that these believers would discover their true identity and that identity would be founded upon the gospel, which enables us to live as God intended. Now, the good news of Jesus Christ that is told to us in the gospel goes to war with those things that we would form our identity on. It hits them. It goes up against them. And it's in conflict and contrast to them because God wants us to define our identity not on our pain, our past, our problems, those things. He doesn't want us to find our identity in those. He wants us to define our identity in Christ. 
So through this chapter, through this 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to ask and answer three questions. The first question we're going to ask and answer is, who were you? Who were you? Second one is, who are you? And then finally, we'll ask, who will you be? Now, Paul starts where we would normally begin with each other in talking about who we were. In verse 1, let's read it together. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So Paul is saying, who were you? You were a dead person. You were dead. Now, what does this mean? Paul is not saying that you're physically dead, but what he is talking about is spiritual death. You experience this in your life sometimes. Have you ever been out with friends, at school, at work, on a Monday morning, and you are there, but you're not really there. Anybody ever experienced that? Everybody been on a date with somebody, and you're like, they're here, but they're not really here, right? And this needs to end very quickly, right? We experience this a lot in our lives, that we're, we're living, but we're not really alive. And this is what Paul is talking about here. He's saying that as Christians, before you knew Christ it is very likely that you were living, but you weren't fully alive. And you weren't fully alive because of trespasses and sins. Now, he uses two words to describe what contribute death or what create death in our life. The first word is trespass or trespasses. And what that is describing is those times when we've stepped out of bounds, when we've gone against God's plan and path for us, when when we've stepped outside and we're living in a land that we are not meant to live in. This happens to people all the time. It happens in multiple ways. It happens relationally. You get in a relationship that that is just not, God has not designed you to be in that relationship. And so you experience the the out-of-boundsness of that, and you experience the, the, the difficulty of that, and it creates death in your life. People do this financially. They presume upon God's provision, and so they borrow, and they, they get loaded up with debt, and, and so it has an impact on life. People do this sexually. God's, God's design for sexuality is one man, one woman, in a covenant marriage for one lifetime, and people step out of bounds that way. We do this physically. We don't, we don't realize that we're not superhuman. We, we neglect our bodies. We don't get the rest we need. We don't eat right. We don't exercise. And so we begin to experience the death and those consequences in our lives. We also do this spiritually. We place created things above our creator and we worship what is here rather than God who is in heaven. And we experience spiritual death. And Paul is saying, You have to understand that when you trespass, when you step outside of God's design, it creates spiritual death in your life. And he talks about sins, and sins are those actions that we commit or those things that we do when we're living in those out-of-bounds places. Now, look at those two words, sins and trespasses. What do you notice about them? They're plural. And what it shows us is that we rarely sin singularly. We rarely sin just one sin or trespass, just one trespass. It rarely occurs only once. It is multiple and it's progressive and it's continual and it's repetitive. So one little lie turns into another lie, turns into a bigger and more bolder lie. One judgmental thought leads to several. Those thoughts lead to words. Words are shared and relationships are damaged and destroyed. One lustful thought leads to another, leads to acting out, and then a pattern develops in our lives. One critical condemning thought about ourselves leads to another and then leads to a framework and a wholesale rejection of how we could understand how God's created us in a fear of other people. 
sinful patterns, as they persist more and more, create death in our life. And so before we were in Christ, Paul says, you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. Now, we were talking about this passage in in our gospel community group, and one of our gospel community members were saying, you know, they were talking about this passage, and they were saying, you know, I remember when I got dropped off at college, and my uh, dad said to me, do well, major in marketing and accounting, and then just pursue your dreams, and, and you'll be successful. And she said, as I did that, I got, I got involved with, um, you know, my career, and I made lots of money, and, you know, I got engaged in all kinds of things that, that looking back on it, were not part of God's design and desire for me. And I realized that the more I pursued that, the more dead I became inside. This is what happens to us before Christ, before Christ comes into our life, where he redeems us. We were dead. We were also disobedient. Not only dead, but disobedient. Now, Paul helps us understand where this draw to be outside of God's bounds, to, to live in this land where we would, would be called trespassers. He, he helps us understand what draws us out. And he says there are several things. One is he says it's our culture. He says this in verse 2. It's the course of this world. It's the course of this world. You think about our culture. Our culture calls us to live lifestyles and to be in pursuit of life that is outside of the life that God designs for us or desires for us. Now, one of the ways I was uh, just really aware of this recently, past couple weeks, was in watching the presidential debates. And who is glad that that's going to be all over with next Tuesday? Anybody glad? All right. You guys didn't sound very glad about that. But it's important to go out, participate in the process, but, but we're ready for it to kind of be at an end. And, and as I was watching these debates, one of the things that that I realized, especially in that town hall debate, was that there's some expectations that serve as kind of the foundation of our culture. And the expectations are, somebody owes me. Somebody owes me. So the questions that were being asked of each of the candidates there were, if I vote for you, what do I going to get in return? Will I get a job when I graduate? Will, will you make our country and my world a better place? Will you make all of the things that I want to happen come true? Who's going to give me the best shot at that? And what it underlies is it shows that there's a, there's a foundational kind of cultural attitude that says, I am owed a stress-free, successful, and happy life. And if you look at scriptures, you don't see that, right? And so our culture on a foundational level calls us to trespass and live in places that God never designed. We see this all the time. Paul also writes and says, Satan, who is described here as the prince of the power of the air, that Satan calls us to live out of God's design, to sin, to trespass against God. Satan did this in the garden. If you were to go into Genesis in the early chapters, what you find is that Satan's tactics are are to get people to dismiss God's goodness, to doubt his goodness, and to dismiss his word. Satan, in that very first moment when he came to tempt Adam and Eve, he said, did God really say that you're not supposed to eat of of these trees that are in the garden? Did God really say that? Is God holding out on you? And and this is an idea that gets planted into our, our minds by the influence of Satan, and he wants us to take care of our own needs and reject God's goodness. 
And so Satan calls us to trust. He tempts us to trespass. So culture, Satan, and then our own sinful nature. And Paul writes and lets us know that there are passions in our flesh that call us to carry out the desires of our flesh and and the desires of our body and the desires of our mind. And so what he's showing us here is that we sin with our bodies and we sin with our minds. And so there's something inside of each and every person that you will ever meet that calls them to trespass against God. There's this call, there's this pull. And oftentimes what we do is we downplay sin. We dismiss it. We, we make it kind of no big deal. We kind of excuse it. And you see this happen, especially when we're kids, when we're young. And you see this, if you're around uh, young families who have little kids, you can see this begin to develop. Have you ever been around a young family that has little kids and the little kids are very tired and they're sleepy and they might just be a little bit cranky? Anybody ever been around somebody like their family, right? You've got lots of little kids around here, right? So you've probably seen that, right? And so what happens? A parent will say, well, you know what? They're just a little bit sleepy, right? I mean, the kid's like pushing things over and like shouting and hitting and screaming and all that. And you're thinking, you know what? I think something's going on with them more than just a little bit of a sleep deficit, right? I mean, yes, they may be sleepy, but they're also a little sinner, right? They're being defiant. They're being rebellious, all those kinds of things. This shows and this points out that there's something inside each and every person that is marked by sin. And we dismiss that. We do this for ourselves. You know what? Yeah, you know, I've been a little harsh lately, but I'm under a lot of stress. Yeah, you know, I'm kind of, I'm comforting myself in in ways that, you know, God's not, uh, you know, approved of in his word. And I'm kind of comforting myself, but... um, you know, it's been difficult lately. We dismiss our sin. We dismiss our sin not only about things going on in the present, but also our past. Sin is a big deal. Paul says part of our identity, not only were we, we dead, not only were we disobedient, but we were children of wrath. We were children of wrath. The absolute truth is this, that sin angers God. It angers him. It's a rejection of him. It's in essence saying, you know what, God, I know better. And I'm going to pursue my own way, and I'm going to ignore your way. I mean, think about that for just a moment. Sin angers God. We look in the Old Testament, and there's a verse in Isaiah 13. It says this, See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and to destroy sinners within it. And so immediately, some of you, if you are new to to checking out Christianity, if you're new to attending church, you go, I knew it. I knew God was angry, and I knew he gets angry at people. I knew it. That's true. That is one response of God to sin. But how else does God respond to sin? What else does he do? There's a verse in uh, John chapter 3. Let's read that together. Here's what it says. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And what John is saying to us there is that there's connection between belief and obedience. So yes, God is angry at sin. Yes, God's wrath will be displayed towards sin and sinners at one day. But John says there is something else that happens in God's response to sin. That belief in Christ, belief in Christ appeases the wrath of God. 
And belief in Christ leads to obedience. And this is where we get it mixed up. Sometimes we say, okay, well, obeying God then leads to God's blessing and his favor. That is true, but it does not lead to our salvation. If obedience and living right led to our salvation, then our salvation would be based upon works and there would be no need for Christ. And for some people, they get caught up in this. I've got to behave better. I've got to do better in order that God would accept me more. That's not what Paul is saying. And Paul is saying here is that in Christ, in Christ, we have a new identity. Verses 4 and 5, probably the the most uh, transitional and most important verses in this section of Ephesians. Uh, it, It indicates God's disposition towards sinners. Yes, God is angry towards sin. Yes, his wrath wrath will be displayed. But it also tells us in verses 4 and 5 of Ephesians chapter 2, God's response to sinners. Look at it. Here's what it says. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us us alive together with Christ. So what does this tell us about God? It tells us that he's rich in mercy, that he loves greatly even when we were dead in our sins. So what is God's response to sinners? In Christ, God generously extends his mercy to sinners, to us, to you and I. When we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God responds to us with mercy and grace and love. Now, understanding this is difficult for some of you because the only understanding that you have of love is conditional love. Conditional love that's a given to you if you do right, If you achieve, if you perform, if you are good, you only experience love in those kinds of ways, that that it has to flow towards you, but it's dependent upon your performance. This is not what God is talking about. It's not what Paul's writing about here. God doesn't love us in that way. He loves us in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our lostness, in the midst of our brokenness. And God's love is demonstrated when he sent Jesus Christ to redeem us. So God is creating a new identity for us not based upon what we do, but upon what Christ has done for us. So what happens when God saves us? What happens when we respond to the good news of the gospel that goes against all of those things that we would form our identity on? God changes us, and in Christ, he grants us a new identity. I was dead. I was disobedient. I was a child of wrath. But now, I have been made alive in Christ. So who are you? Who are you now in Christ? Paul wants them to understand that they are alive, that they've been made alive with Jesus. This tells us that in verse 5, that we've been made alive together with Christ. Now, they're not made alive because they got a little religion. They enrolled in a community group. They began to have accountability partners. They began to try to do right religious things. They're alive because of the work of Christ, because they understand that religious activity doesn't change doesn't change them. Accountability doesn't stop them from sinning. Those things are good. But apart from their life being joined with Christ, they will not be alive. This is a foundational truth of the gospel. Apart from Christ, you remain dead. One commentator says this about this section of Ephesians. He said, the unbeliever is not sick. He is dead. He does not need resuscitation. He needs resurrection. So what it shows us is my sin is not simply a problem. My sin is evidence of a terminal condition, of a terminal condition that only a relationship with Jesus will bring about change in my life. I need Christ. 
I need new life in him. So I've been made alive in Christ, but I've also been made victorious. I am raised up with Jesus. Paul indicates this in verse 6. He said, Jesus then defeats death. He's raised from the dead and is with the same resurrection power that I am now raised up over and above my sin, not by my own work, but by Christ's work. And as I have been freed from the power of sin in my life, I now see sin differently. I have power over sin. Sin has lost its stranglehold over me. This doesn't mean that I don't still sin, but sin doesn't have absolute power over my life. So if we were to think about this, if you were to survey your own life, think about your own life. Over the last year, which has been more true of you? Is the power and the work of God displayed in your life more regularly? Or is the power of sin in your life displayed more regularly? Is the pull of God's work in your life stronger than the pull of sin? You know, this side of heaven, we are going to still struggle with sin. It's going to be a reality. But the progressive work of God in sanctifying us and making us more like Christ will draw us more into more Christ-likeness as we yield to that. And so what we're looking for is progress, not perfection. My wife and I uh, lead a gospel community, and one of the, the things that we do is often we'll meet with couples and just talk about how life is going. And we were meeting with this couple uh, just uh, several days ago, and one of the things that they were struggling through is they have good season in their marriage, uh, followed by really not good seasons. And so they seem to be in the short time, time span of a couple of weeks. So good four weeks, and then weeks five and six are really bad, right? Some of you might find yourself in that situation in life. Maybe it's not marriage. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's a, a struggle that you're going through. And one of the things that, that I just asked them is I said, are you expecting to be perfect? In other words, are you expecting to like pray and read the Bible and confess your sin and then all of a sudden never have to deal with that again? Is that what you're expecting? And they kind of sat there and they, they looked at us for a while. And, and then they said, yeah, I think that's probably what we're expecting. And as we begin to dialogue more, one of the truths and one of the realities that I wanted to impress upon them that you'll see in the pages of Scripture is this side of heaven, you will not be perfect. But because of Christ's work in your life, you will see progress. And so if you're struggling with sin and, and you are defeated and discouraged because you're not perfect, realize you'll never be perfect this side of heaven. But in the struggle and in the work of God in your life, you will see progress. So one of the things that you should do on a regular basis is ask those who you're living in community with. Do you see progress in my life? Do you see God forming and shaping me to be more like him? Do you, do you see me being less harsh with my words? Do you see me being more trusting in, in God's provision and ready to follow him in faith? Do you see God's progress displayed in my life? Progress, not perfection. So we have been seated with Christ, or we, we've been redeemed in Christ. We've been made alive with Christ. Another, another uh, reality that Paul wants us to see here is that we've been seated with Christ, that we're secure in him. And he talks about this in verse 6. Now, the word for seated here carries this meaning. It means that I have been made a citizen of the kingdom, and I have a place at the table. Now, many of you, over the next course of years, what, what's going to happen is your friends are going to get engaged and they're going to get married and you're going to go to a lot of weddings and a lot of wedding receptions. And at the wedding reception, you're hoping for two things. One, or three things, actually. Um, you're hoping for good food. You're hoping for a good table, right? And you're hoping for a good DJ, right? So let's talk about the table, right? You're hoping, let's, let's have a good table. I hope that I get at a good table. This is kind of this idea. 
that God has given you a place at the table. He's welcomed you. He's ushered you in. That you have a place to be in his presence. This is this idea of being seated with Christ. Why does God do this? Why does he he give us a, a place at the table, at the reception? Because he's good, and he's gracious, and he's kind. Not because of who we are, right? He does this because he is good, is loving, is gracious, and is kind. Now, let me kind of put skin on this idea a little bit more. I want to show you a picture. Um, this is me, and then uh, that's a pastor, a uh, not very famous pastor named Rick Warren. Anybody ever heard of him? He wrote a little book called uh, Purpose Driven Life. Probably didn't sell much, right? So anyway, there's a guy, if you've never heard of him, he's like this big, big-time pastor. So this, this was taken at a conference that uh, I was at last year. And uh, we went there, and I was working uh, on staff with the church at the time. And, and so a bunch of us went down there for this conference. And so we go to the registration table, and we show up, and we're all getting our name tags. And so my name tag's not at this table. It's in another building at another place. And so when we show up, uh, the rest of our team gets their name tags, and then they act like I'm a big shot of some sort. And they say, oh, Mr. Bickford, we're really glad that you're here. Your name tag and registration packet are in the VIP room. And immediately I look at the team that I'm with, and they're not VIPs, and they know it, and they're looking at me like, you sold us out. Thank you very much. So this is not a good situation. So they usher me, and I, you know, hey, can I bring my, like, pastor's posse with me at this point? So we go over to this another building. Uh, We walk into this room, we open the door, there's like mood lighting and there's like good food and famous people and and they give me my name tag and so I have a name tag that gives me access to a VIP room. This is the idea here. In Christ, you've been ushered in to God's gracious kindness, to his blessing. Not because of who you are, but because of who Jesus is. Paul writes this and in verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2, and he says, For grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. This is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. We are seated, we are secure in Christ, not because of ourselves, but because of the gracious gift of God. We don't earn a gift. We receive a gift. When we celebrate Christmas at our house, when our kids come downstairs and when we exchange gifts, my children, before they open up their gifts, they don't say to me, Dad, we love this opportunity. We're excited about the opportunity to open these gifts. But before we open them, we would like to do a little work around the house. We're going to clean our rooms. We're going to you know, clean all of the house. We're going we're gonna to work Uh, Because we just want to show you how grateful we are, right? That never transpires. Why? That's not what a gift is about, right? A gift is given and received. It's not earned. It's not a reward. This is what salvation is for us. It's not something we earn. It's something that is given. And this gift of God extended us in Christ is not something that we have to perform for. It's something that by faith we receive. And this is what God is telling us, that the gift of God, that salvation is extended to us, that we might receive it by faith. It's given by grace and it's received in faith. And so what this shows us then is that we can stop working for our salvation and begin to work from our salvation. There's a difference there. 
that I'm not on a treadmill trying to perform for God in order that I might be approved, but I am a recipient of God's gracious gift of salvation. This is what Paul is underscoring here. So, I have been blessed in Christ. Not because of my works, but because of God's action in his work. But verse 10, Paul shifts a little bit here and he says that I am a work of God, that I am God's workmanship. He said that you and I represent the work of God, that our physical bodies, our emotional makeup, our our temperaments, all of who we are is a wonderful work and creation of God. The word he uses there is the word that we derive our word poem from. You are a poem. You are a creation. You are a work of God. Now, as people, one of the things we often do is we despise the way we are made, right? We don't like who we are physically. Often we see this expressed and talked about. I mean, ladies who have like straight hair, look at the ladies who have curly hair and they want curly hair. And the ladies who have curly hair, look at the ladies who have straight hair and want, you know, their hair. And so guys who have no hair, look at the guys who have hair and they think, I'd like to have hair. And the guys who have hair, look at the guys who have no hair and they say, I want to keep my hair, right? (laughs) So it works. So we look at at how each other is made. and, And oftentimes when we don't like how we're made, what we're really doing is we're rejecting our creator, and the way that he's created us. And so in effect, what we're saying to him is, God, I think you made a mistake. That's not just physical appearance, but it's temperament. Maybe it's talent, or it's intellect, or it's it's the gifts that we've been given, or, or the abilities that we have. And we dismiss and we downplay ourselves. And what Paul is saying is part of your new identity, you have to come to grips that you are a work of God and that he has designed you and that because he has designed you, how he has designed you, his glory is meant to be displayed in your life. Paul continues and says, we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So in other words, God has created you, he's wired you up, he's made you very unique, and he's prepared something for you to do in advance that is a good work, that a good work can be defined as ministry and support of the gospel. You have a God-given assignment with your name on it. And so if you're downplaying who you are, you're downplaying your talent, if you're not engaged in gospel ministry and ministry and support of the gospel in some capacity with this body of believers then you are not living out your true identity and calling. God has called you to be engaged, and he's called you to, to live out the good work that he's prepared for you in advance. Now, for many of you, it's going to be varied and different. You're not, you're not supposed to fulfill somebody's assignment. You're supposed to fulfill your own assignment. And some of you are going, man, I would not even know where to begin or where to start. I mean, I'm a student or, you know, we've got little kids or, or, or all those kinds of things. Let me ask you some questions and process with you some questions that may help you understand what God is doing in your life and what he's called you to do. First is, what are you drawn to? Like, what are you really drawn to? What is it that, that you know, when you hear about it, like, it just something comes alive in you? Is it community? Is it like, like helping people understand who they are in Christ? Uh, is, it, is it like helping people find redemption in Christ, you know, for redemption groups? Is it, is it serving the community through an event like Affordable Christmas? What is it that you're drawn to? What is it that, that makes you come alive? Think about this. What is your disposition? 
are you like a task-oriented person? Are, are you the person that has like the list, you know, and you like to check off the list and you like to make things happen? And uh, Are you that kind of person or are you more a people person? You just like to, hey, the more people, the better, and let's organize people and let's have people and I want to make them feel welcome. What are you? What's your disposition? What do you have talent and gifting for? I mean, think about it. Like, we know this. Singers should sing and non-singers should only sing in the shower, Right? People who are organizers, they, they should organize, right? Disorganized people, bless their hearts, they shouldn't organize like lots of people, right? You shouldn't do that. I mean, just fulfill your gift and your talents. What has God equipped you to do? What is it that you keep telling yourself? Man, somebody should do something about this. As you think about the landscape of this community, you think about the, the life of this church, you just say, man, I think somebody... Whoever, somebody just needs to do something about this. This could be God's prompting in your life to step up and to rise up and and to fulfill what he's called you to do. What have others affirmed as your unique contribution to a group of people? What do people say they miss when you're not present? What do people say that you add to a particular setting or a group of people? What is it that you bring? And then here's kind of the last one. Just start with something. Start with something and then find your place. What you begin with may not be what you end with, but it's a beginning point. Start with something. You're God's workmanship. He's created you for good works, and he's prepared those for you in advance. The body of Christ in support of gospel ministry in this community that people might know Jesus. So get in the game. Who were you? Who were you before you met Christ? Well, you're dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were a child of wrath. You were under God's wrath. But by God's grace and because of Christ, you have been made alive in Christ. You have a new identity. You're victorious over sin. You're secure in Christ. And you're a wonderful work of his creation. So we've talked about who you were. talked about who you are. And here's the last question. Who will you be? Who will you be? This is really your choice. Who are you going to be? Are you going to continue to, to live out of the identity of who you were, which is not where God has designed you to be? Are you still going to live under the power of sin and pursuing sin and trespassing? Are you going to, are you going to live there? Or are you going to live in your new identity? You're going to be alive. You're going to be victorious. You're going to be seated with him. Are you going to be secure in him? Are you going to find your place in serving the body? Who are you going to be? Because this is the question that you answer. This is the question that I have to answer. Who are you going to be? Who will you be? For some of you, it's a transition time where you understand that you are separated from God because of the sin in your life. And for some of you, the response today, answering that question today, is responding in faith by trusting Jesus. To simply say, you know what? I, I realize that apart from Christ, I am separated and I am under the wrath of God. And my response is to trust him and to realize that Jesus came to pay the penalty for my sins so I don't have to. And that's your response. Some of you, it's to leave your former identity where you have been living under a false identity. And it's to repent of the sin in your life and the trespasses in your life. And it's to repent of that and it's to live in the new identity that God has designed for you. That's your response. And for some of you, it's simply to say yes to the work that God has created you to fulfill for his kingdom and gospel purposes. So who will you be? Who will you be today?